Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Today we're going to talk with David Ayers. He is the author of Christian Marriage, a Comprehensive Introduction. He'll be joining us later this hour. We'll also talk about what happened in North Korea and much more from today's headlines. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering today's program, and we're glad to have you with us. Well, President Trump abruptly walked away from negotiations with North Korean leader Kim Jong-un. No big surprise there, I suppose. And in Vietnam, with no deal, headed back to Washington, saying the U.S. is unwilling to meet Kim's demand of lifting all sanctions on the rogue regime without first securing its meaningful commitment to denuclearization. Speaking in Hanoi, the president said the U.S. asked Kim to do more regarding his intentions to denuclearize, and he was unprepared to do that. Sometimes you have to walk, Trump said. Well, he also said the summit fell through after the North demanded a full removal of U.S.-led international sanctions in exchange for the shuttering of the North's Yongbyon nuclear facility, one Trump and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo told reporters that the U.S. wasn't willing to make a deal without the North committing to giving up its secretive nuclear facilities outside Yongbyon, as well as its missiles and warheads program. Well, the president told reporters that Kim promised he would not resume nuclear and missile testing, and the president said he was taking Kim, uh, Kim's word for it. Michael Cohen, the former fixer about to begin his three-year prison term, denounced President Trump during an explosive congressional hearing yesterday with a series of allegations calling his former boss a racist, testifying he was aware of advisor Roger Stone's talks with WikiLeaks about stolen Democratic emails during the 2016 campaign and alleging he oversaw an array of illicit schemes during the 10 years they worked together. Um, still, Trump's former personal attorney stopped short of saying he had evidence that Trump's presidential campaign colluded, uh, sort of an arcane word now that attention has shifted to other business dealings. But anyway, colluded with Russia in 2016, asserted he had only suspicions. Republicans on the House Oversight Committee repeatedly poked holes in Cohen's credibility, pointing out that he's been convicted for lying to Congress and suggesting he turned against Trump only after not landing a White House job. Now, Cohen denied that he wanted a White House job. However, footage since emerged saying in which he said on camera, yeah, I very much expect that and I want to work in the White House. It's kind of an insignificant point, but it wasn't uh, exposed at least one lie told during the hearing. Cohen is set to testify in private before the House uh, Committee on, well, today. He is scheduled to report to prison in May on the 6th to start serving a three-year sentence for campaign finance and other violations. Not a very credible witness, but he did raise a number of issues that the Democrats are going to pursue. We'll talk a little more about that later in the uh, in the hour. President Trump, speaking at a news conference in Vietnam after his summit with Kim Jong-un ended early, said he was a little impressed that my Michael Cohen told Congress uh, there was no collusion between his uh, presidential campaign and Russia. Now, he may have missed the part in which Cohen said he suspected there uh, might have been but had no evidence. Trump said Cohen lied so much during the hearing that he was a bit surprised that he didn't lie about Russian collusion allegations. He decided to give 95 percent effort instead of 100 percent, Trump said. The president slammed the hearing as fake and said it was a terrible thing for Democrats to hold it during the summit. No American president should ever have to go through this. He said it's a terrible thing for the country. Meanwhile, former Texas Representative Beto O'Rourke 
uh, said today that he has made up his mind about his political future, raising expectations that he will be the latest Democrat to jump into the crowded field for the party's 2020 presidential nomination. His wife, Amy, um, he says, she and I have made a decision about how we can best serve our country. The 46-year-old O'Rourke said in a statement, we are excited to share it with everyone soon. The statement was first obtained by the Dallas Morning News, which reported that O'Rourke would not pursue a potential challenge to Senator John Cornyn, the number two Republican in Congress, upper chamber, which suggested that he was probably going to run uh, for the White House. Now, let's hope the announcement isn't made from a dentist's office, maybe someplace a little more public. Meanwhile, PETA wants um, AOC, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, to make a vegan Green New Deal. The animal rights group, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, or PETA, has sent a letter to the representative praising her push for a Green New Deal and asking the congresswoman to promote more vegan food policies. Now, we do know that at least one of the um, Democrat um, Hopefuls for the the presidential nomination has made that a platform or a plank in his platform. The activist group made it uh, made its case to Ocasio Cortez to help it reclaim the earth and wants to limit the country's dependence on an animal food supply to help curb greenhouse emissions and provide Americans with what the group called healthful eating. Because animal agriculture not only is devastating to animals but also poisons the environment and makes America sick, we want uh, we need a vegan Green New Deal. The PETA president. Ingrid Newkirk said in a statement. So I suppose now having politicians dictate what we eat is acceptable. Well, the U.S. economy grew last year at its fastest rate since 2015, CBS News reports, albeit a 2.9% annual growth rate in 2018, rather, fell just shy of the president's promise hit to uh, 3%. We'll talk more about that later. And Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives unveiled an ambitious proposal to remove all Americans into the uh, government's Medicare health insurance program. The bill would transition the U.S. health care system to a single-payer Medicare for All program funded by the government in two years. Well, of course, the government doesn't generate any revenue. It would be funded by taxpayers. It's unlikely to gain the support of any Republicans in the House or the Senate who have derided single-payer health care as a socialist policy and oppose government interference in health care. It also remains unclear whether Democratic House Speaker Nancy Pelosi will bring the legislation up for a vote. And National Review reports that Congresswoman Rashida Talab apologized after she called Representative Mark Meadows a racist during Michael Cohen's uh, heated congressional hearing on Wednesday. The freshman uh, Michigan Democrat had choice words for Meadows after the North Carolina conservative introduced Lynn Patton, who is African-American and a former employee of the Trump organization in an effort to dismantle the claim from Cohen that President Trump's... uh, (laughs) Anyway, the back and forth uh, led to uh, the the uh, congresswoman saying, I was not referring to you um, as a racist, but she certainly was referring to him as using props to make the point about the president. We're going to take a quick break. I'm going to take a sip of tea and we'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with David Ayers. He is a Christi- the author rather, of Christian Marriage, a Comprehensive Introduction. 
Well, Democratic Colorado Governor Jared Polis's signature is all that remains to include Colorado among the ranks of states prepared to abandon the electoral college system in favor of a nationwide popular vote for the next presidential election. Colorado would bring the number of states who have uh, joined the national popular vote interstate compact, a lot of words there, uh, to 12 plus the District of Columbia. States have the constitutional right to manage the awarding of electoral votes in national elections, with many states opting uh, for winner-take-all. If states with 270 electoral votes or the number needed to elect a president agree to award their votes to the majority voter uh, holder, it could effectively convert the presidential election to a popular vote. Colorado makes the total electoral votes representing um, the national popular vote interstate compact states to 181. And again, the threshold is 270. A federal judge in Texas ruled uh, that state officials created a mess when they questioned the citizenship of about 98,000 voters and mistakenly concluded that many of those voters uh, were not eligible to cast ballots. The sharply written ruling by U.S. District Judge Fred Beery of uh, San Antonio ordered Texas officials to halt the removal of any registered voters from the state voter rolls. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton said the federal judge was improperly assuming control over the state voting system. And the Federal Bureau of Investigation said on Monday violent crime dropped across the country in 2018. The agency released the preliminary semiannual uniform crime report comparing the first six months of 2018 with the first six months of 2017. The FBI reportedly uh, found violent crime decreased by 4.3 percent between 2017 and 2018. Robbery and burglary saw the largest decrease of uh, all the crimes, dropping 12 point, or rather 2, 12.7 percent. Arson dropped 9.4 percent. Property crimes fell 7.2 and aggravated assault was down 2 percent. Rape, the only crime to see an increase, was up 0.6 percent. And a new report raises questions about how the U.S. Department of Education monitors the performance of its wide-ranging elementary and secondary education programs. The department currently receives about $38 billion for its major K-12 education programs. Yet the assessment says these programs are plagued by complex and persistent challenges, many of which have been identified previously, according to the U.S. Government Accountability Office. Given the ongoing problems with the department, in contrast to the growth of successful state-level parental choice programs, it is well considered abolishing uh, the U.S. Department of Education and uh, for all. Well, are India and Pakistan lurching toward a war? An escalating confrontation between the South Asian neighbors means that we can no longer rule out that possibility. For now, the path out of the current crisis appears straightforward. Pakistan should return the captured Indian pilots and take concrete steps to rein in jihadist groups like JM and another uh, that target India. For its part, India needs to ensure that its official rhetoric remains measured and that its next steps are not driven primarily by domestic political considerations. My understanding is Pakistan did return the Indian pilots um, and uh, in an effort to de-escalate uh, affairs there. And on this day in 1993, a gun battle erupted at a religious compound near Waco, Texas, when agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms try to arrest Branch Davidian leader David Koresh on weapons charges. Four agents, six Davidians were killed as a 51-day standoff begins. And on this day in 1953, scientists James D. Watson and Francis H. C. Crick announced they have discovered the double helix structure of DNA.
Finally, on this day in 1849, the California Gold Rush begins in earnest as regular steamship service starts bringing gold seekers to San Francisco. Well, President Trump, as I mentioned earlier, abruptly walked away from the negotiations with North Korea in Vietnam, headed back to Washington on uh, Thursday afternoon, saying the U.S. is unwilling to meet Kim Jong-un's demand of lifting all sanctions on the rogue regime without first securing meaningful commitment to denuclearization. Speaking from Hanoi, the president told reporters that he had asked Kim to do more regarding the, his intentions to denuclearize and was um, unprepared to do that. Um, meanwhile, um, North Korea took to the, uh, the mic in a press conference after the end of today's or yesterday's meeting, depending on which ground you happen to be standing on, suggesting it was the president's fault because he had asked for too much. Now, one assumes that before these kinds of high level negotiations, um, what's being asked for and what's, uh, what the opposite party is willing to do is already pretty much understood. That doesn't seem to have been the case this time around, or perhaps, uh, there were more promising words um, uh, given before the meeting, which were withdrawn during. But nonetheless, it um, ended in a stalemate and the president walked away. There were hints, however, we're being told of a future deal and a future summit. We'll see what actually happens. Well, for those speculating about what should have happened during this summit, uh, this Today and yesterday, uh, some of the things the president should have done is insist on a detailed, comprehensive roadmap to denuclearization that includes intrusive uh, verification requirements. North Korea has never agreed to that. A refusal to sign a meaningless peace declaration that does not reduce the North Korean military threat. Um, declining to commit to decrease U.S. forces prior to reducing the North Korean conventional forces that are threatening South Korea, rejecting an ICBM-only deal, maintaining sanctions until the triggered actions are removed. That certainly was the stance taken today. And a requirement that North Korea abide by international requirements to denuclearize before receiving any financial aid from the international community. So those were the, some of the things that uh, were hoped for, at least a few of them, given the, uh, the short length of the meetings, were actually accomplished. So I suppose you can uh, make that make that case. Well, as I mentioned earlier, Beto O'Rourke said that he will be making an announcement soon on a presidential run, indicating that he fully intends to do just that. His comments came after the Dallas Morning News reported that he would not challenge Senator John Cornyn of Texas for his Senate seat and that he's made a decision about his future plans. Now, the speculation is, of course, that the uh, smiling O'Rourke will, in fact, announce his a hat is being thrown into the ring for the Democratic nomination. Meanwhile, former Vice President Joe Biden inched closer to announcing a long-awaited decision to run for president in 2020, saying that his family wanted him to run, but that there were still a couple hurdles to go through before he could commit. Now, the former vice president, who has twice unsuccessfully sought the Democratic presidential nomination, said in an appearance at the University of Delaware that getting support from his family was the first hurdle in the decision to launch a campaign uh, which he would likely enter at or near the front of the large pack of Democrats who've already announced for president in 2020. He said he was uh, still taking a hard look at whether the alleged uh, appeal that he has, uh, how deep it runs or whether or not it's actually real. Even if he's uh, been on the sidelines of the growing field of Democratic candidates, the former vice president has been at the top of many polls and is widely admired in the party. Now, one way to reduce that admiration is to put your hat in the ring and you'll see it reduce rather quickly. I would uh, anticipate 
Uh, his supporters believe he would be the strongest candidate to oppose President Trump because he has an unparalleled policy and political experience behind him and a centrist record that could help the party woo swing voters. Now, what that uh, says to and does for um, the more left leaning uh, end of the political spectrum for the Democrats is a whole nother question because you've got quite a contrast there. His presence could pose new obstacles to other candidates like Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who are uh, campaigning on the basis of pragmatic values and middle American appeal, similar to those that would be a hallmark of a Biden candidacy. Now, some are suggesting the 76-year-old and Beto O'Rourke would be a great um, team in running, but of course you have to have the nomination before that's even a factor. So again, uh, Beto O'Rourke announcing that he will be making an announcement to announce something about what he's going to announce soon, and the former vice president saying that he's still thinking about it. His grandkids want him to run. His son before his death, as you might recall, indicated he wanted his father to run. But the big question is whether or not his time has come and gone. Many argue that 2016 was the year for Joe Biden. The circumstances did not make that uh, a decision he felt he could make, and at uh, at his current age and with the um, current lineup of uh, candidates running for the Democratic Party, there are questions about whether or not he is a viable candidate, but that, of course, will be up to him. 29 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. When we return, we're going to talk with David Ayers. He is the author of Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. That's next, right here on The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the truth is there's a lot of confusion about the purpose of marriage today. I mean, who thinks about what's the purpose outside the church as well as in the church? Well, my next guest is a distinguished Christian sociologist and author of Christian Marriage. It's a theologically rich, biblically robust, and sociologically informed treatise on the nature and value of marriage. He draws on recent social science research, empirical data, and social history. He paints a picture of marriage as an institution meant for human flourishing, but goes much, much deeper to explain what Christian marriage is all about. Well, Dr. David Ayers is a professor of sociology in the Alva J. Calderwood School of Arts and Letters at Grove College, Grove City College, Pennsylvania. Until recently, he also served as dean and is currently interim provost and vice president for academic affairs. He holds his Ph.D. in sociology from New York University. He is the author of three books. We're going to talk about his latest here today. And he's also taught courses on marriage and family for over 30 years. Again, the title of the book we're talking about today, Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Ayers. Well, thanks very much for having me. And hello from the uh, Midwest Great Lakes region. (laughs) Well, welcome. Marriage is a subject about which uh, there's lots of conversation, but perhaps less understanding. Why does it matter, particularly in the context of Christian marriage, that we have an understanding of what its purpose is and what its goal is? Well, you know, if you look at all the the classic confessions of faith, like the Westminster Confession, the Anglican wedding ceremony that many of us know from Pride and Prejudice, for example— Tell, you know, stating outwardly what the purposes of marriage were and what the definition of marriage was was simply built into their understanding of the institution of marriage itself. And we, we've lost our sense of that. I, I, I started telling students 30 years ago that the definition of marriage and the definition of family would become one of the most important issues uh, facing the country over the next several decades. And people looked at me like I was crazy. Mm-hmm. 
but I was already seeing that because of some of the work at that time I'd been doing just prior to that in Washington, D.C., and watching uh, Jimmy Carter being flayed alive for trying to have a White House conference on the family because the idea that there's a singular thing called the family uh, was already becoming defensive, offensive to lots of people. So really, unless we can get that straight, if we, unless we can get straight what marriage is and what its purposes are as God intends it, then, then we can't really speak to our culture and we can't really do marriage well because we don't really know what it is we're actually trying to do. Now, your book is titled Christian Marriage, and sadly, there's less understanding than one would assume within the context of the Christian faith in terms of what the purpose and meaning of marriage is. Why is that the case? I mean, I don't want to necessarily blame, you know, lay the blame anywhere in particular, but how is it that we have become so um, naive about what marriage is? Is it that we have lost our regard for the uh, the value of Scripture and informing us about God's intent? Well, you know, I, I have a lot of data that I go over in my book, very, a very recent and I think correctly interpreted data. And the statistics in terms of practice and belief among professing believers, uh, even professing believers who are in church on a weekly basis, I think many, many of your uh, listeners will find this absolutely shocking. And, you know, the question that I have is how far, how did we get to where we departed this far from something that, that is clear as a bell, and that if you say that you believe in the Bible as the inerrant Word of God, if you say that you're submitting to the Lordship of Christ, there should be just no question uh, about this. Uh, so, for example, a statement like, you know, it's a good idea for people to live together before they get married, that should be 100%. No, it's not. Uh, and in fact, what we find is that a growing plurality of professing evangelicals are saying, well, maybe it's not such a bad idea. And, and, and of course, they're wrong about that. How we got there, I think, is a, is a complex thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've lost control of the culture, and so those messages are coming in from all over. The, the job of teaching and parenting and instructing people in these truths is, is um, harder now than it ever was. But we're also not really trying as hard as we used to either in terms of imparting those basic truths, starting with the first two chapters of Genesis and working forward in terms of what marriage is, what family is, what sexuality is, what its purposes are, uh, why, why God created man and woman and conducted the first wedding uh, right in the second chapter of Genesis. Uh, you know, why is that? And, and, and a lot of the uh, failure has not so much been a failure of preaching preaching things that are wrong, but failing to preach the things that are right. Many of us are in churches where we haven't heard these issues addressed from the pulpit sometimes in years. Mm. Mm. Now, can we lay the blame, at least in part, on the fact that the book of Genesis has been challenged and discredited on other issues, which undermines its uh, its viability and its relevance to all of the other issues that are uh, are taught there? Well, certainly, you know, when you get into the theory of evolution, and particularly what we would call, it goes to the college, probably the theory of macroevolution, right? The idea of, Mm -hmm. uh, for example, having come out of lower primates and so forth. The attempt there is to to challenge a biblical record at the core. So, for example, to say real history doesn't start until Genesis chapter 11 and these kinds of things. 
And yet, although I think as, as true believers, we can, we can have a spectrum of beliefs in terms of what exactly is happening in those first several chapters of Genesis, I, I think what we have to agree on is that God intentionally created the human race, that he made them male and female, that he made marriage uh, in, in a particular shape and set of purposes before the fall as a creation ordinance, as something established, and at the very root and foundation of human society, because marriage is the fountain of the family, and the fountain and the family is the fountain of all other human social institutions. Now, we're talking about the book titled Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction, and it is comprehensive. In the first part of the book, um, you write about God's boundaries and purposes for marriage, and you begin with a question which is fundamental. And I wonder how often we ask the question, really searching for an answer, what is marriage? That's exactly right. And, you know, the thing is, is that we used to understand those things. For example, you distinguish between a marriage and an annulment. I'm sorry, a divorce and annulment by saying a divorce is the ending of a real marriage. An annulment is a declaration that what people thought was a marriage never really was one, that something fundamentally was missing such that this could not be a true marriage. And, you know, a marriage is a sexual relationship between a man and a woman that at at its outset is intended to be for life. It is a covenantal creational ordinance that we enter into and we accept the terms and boundaries of that relationship. It is, it is designed for procreation and the rearing of children and to provide a good haven for which, within which that to occur. It's, it's designed to be a mutual help and support for the man and the wife of each other through all adversities of life. Uh, although it was created before the fall, God, looking forward to the fall, created marriage as a kind of a bulwark against the effects of sin in the fall, such that we can bear the infirmities of life better uh, because we, we have a life partner who's committed to us uh, no matter what uh, through everything. You know, the marriage is, is, is a covenantal union. It's enacted before witnesses. It's placing yourselves under a vow in front of those witnesses and sealing that vow through, through the sexual act. And, and it's, it's got other terms as well. So, for example, a marriage um, cannot, be between, it cannot be incestual. A brother and a sister cannot be married. Uh, uh, a mother and a son or a father and a daughter cannot be married. And, you know, the funny thing is, is that as the essential definition of marriage is being challenged, all those other things are, are automatically being challenged as well. And mm-hmm. that, was, that was recognized right in Obergefell, right in the arguments being made in front of the Supreme Court. Will restrictions on ancestral marriage stand if this is the, our new way of understanding marriage? Will restrictions on, on not just polygamy, but polyamory, any combination of men and women uh, of any range of sexual orientations being married, will that withstand this new definition of marriage with, with very serious legal minds and Supreme Court justices honestly raising those questions and not being able to get clear answers to them. Mm. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with Dr. David Ayers. He's the author of Christian Marriage, a Comprehensive Introduction, an excellent source uh, for understanding what the scriptures teach and how we can fulfill God's purpose and plan. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 49 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. In the introduction to Christian marriage, a comprehensive introduction, my guest writes, God has set for, forth for us in the scriptures what marriage is and what it is not. We may not define it in any way we wish, nor is it just a relationship rooted in individual aspirations, will, emotional connection, or erotic attraction. God has given it a definition, a definite shape, structure, and boundaries. And we're talking about what Christian marriage is, uh, which he sets forth uh, very well in the book Christian Marriage. Um, this is an important aspect of understanding how to select a mate, what the purpose of the relationship is, rather than just satisfying uh, my own desire for companionship. Um, is this something that is emphasized f- from your perspective in, uh, in terms of uh, the church? in helping people prepare for marriage? No, it really is not as much as it should be. Now, there's all these discussions that have gone on in recent years in Christian circles between, you know, dating and courtship and debates about that. And I try not to get too drawn away into those things, although the recreational dating system, as it's developed uh, in the late 20th century, is, is... as preparation for marriage, it's been a failure. You know, mm-hmm. one of the studies one of the studies that I look at in my book, which is really kind of fascinating, is comparing American young people with young people in places like Central America. And in, in America, people are emphasizing: Are they funny? Are they popular? You know, will they make me more popular? Uh, in, in Central America, it's will this person be a good father? Will this person be a good mother? Is this person hardworking? Are, are they uh, honest? You know, in, in other words, the Central Americans are still emphasizing those qualities that are important for somebody being a, a lifetime partner, while we're emphasizing those qualities that are good for somebody being a recreational dating partner. You know, somebody we can basically have fun with. Or, or used to enhance our status. And, you know, to the extent that we've allowed that to infiltrate the church, people aren't really thinking ahead. They're looking for boyfriends or girlfriends. They're not looking for potential husbands and potential wives. And then, you know, beyond that, the question is, in terms of my particular calling, my personality, my characteristics, my strengths and weaknesses, what kind of person should I have by my side that I can love for a lifetime? Um, and, you know, to, to be able to ask those questions and answer those questions intelligently, guided uh, by wise and caring older people is something that we've lost. Whether, whether we want to call that courtship or something else, uh, we're, we're, we've definitely kind of lost our way with that. Yeah, yeah. In the second part of your book, uh, you focus on uh, life before marriage, selecting a male and preparing for matrimony. What are some of the things that we need to be mindful of during that season? I mean, you've made a contrast between the uh, American dating uh, approach as opposed to uh, the other approach. What are some of the things that we should be considering during this process? Well, the first of all, the we need to really be helping our, our young people. And, and look, when you mess up, repent, and, and so forth. But serial cohabitation, serial heavy heavy dating, uh, serial sex partners, all of these things are associated with much much higher rates of marital failure. And um, the 
our, our young people really need to understand that that's true and why it's true and, and why they're essentially in many respects when they engage in that squandering the future and why for some of them, they need to be going through some serious repentance and a change in their fundamental direction in life on these issues. Uh, the other thing, though, is that we look at, I try to break it into the constants, those things that as Christians we ought to be looking for in a spouse regardless across all people, honesty, integrity, uh, faithfulness to Christ, and, and, and the true, sincere desire to walk with Christ, um, a lack of serious vices, a lack of abusiveness and these kinds of things, and, and not shunning those things aside or excusing them or expecting them to go away. And then beyond that, with regards to suitability for, for you as a particular person, you know, what are their educational aspirations and what are yours? What, what are their positions on essential Christian doctrine uh, and what are yours? Um, you know, what are some of your personality characteristics and to what extent do you need those offset uh, by somebody else who's, who's, who's compatible with you but different uh, in important ways? You know, the, these kinds of things have got to be tackled. Is it really wise to marry somebody that's 30 years older or younger than you? It's not a sin. But in your in your case, is is it wise to do that? If if you're engaging in a marriage across across radically different class backgrounds or lifestyle backgrounds or ethnic backgrounds, there's no sin involved in that. But are you prepared for the challenges of that? And have you thought those things through intelligently? Um, th- those kinds of practical questions are, are the kinds of things we need to help our young people really engage in. And then beyond that. They, they, I, I think everybody getting married today should be getting good premarital counseling uh, of six to eight weeks in length to prepare for marriage. You know, among marriages that end in divorce, half of them, half of marriages that end in divorce, according to the U.S. Census, the divorce is completed by the eighth year and they've separated by the seventh year. About 80% of all divorces are going to happen in the first 10 years of marriage. So when we when we make wise decisions and we do good premarital counseling, we're getting people prepared for what are usually going to be the toughest years of their marriage, addressing the known things that are likely to break their marriage down. You also have a section on divorce and remarriage. Uh, talk a little bit about what you've learned about divorce and remarriage uh, from uh, sociology and, and science as well as an, a Christian approach to these subjects that no one aspires to, but often becomes a part of the story? Well, first of all, <clears throat> to really engage scripturally and doctrinally the range of views on divorce and remarriage, among people who take the Bible seriously, what we can at least agree on is that, first of all, there's no such thing as a no-fault divorce. There's always fault and failure involved, although we can repent and be forgiven of that. Um, you know, that's part of what it means to be human. Uh, we, uh, you know, beyond that, uh, they, they should be relative. It should not be all that common. And, and it should be for fairly what I would call egregious violations of, of the marital covenant, uh, not just because things have gotten a little rough or because one partner is unhappy in marriage. What we know about divorce and remarriage is that the overwhelming majority of divorces occur in marriages in which there is not any serious conflict uh, ongoing. That That's true for about a third or less of all marriages would be serious arguments or abusive relationships. In the majority of divorce, only one partner is actually unhappy. The other partner is actually happy with the marriage, and about 80% of the time, 
the children are actually seeing no issues at all that are impacting their life in terms of marital problems. So the marriage tends to hit the one partner oftentimes and the children like a bolt of lightning. You know, so the we, we've minimized or tried to deny the many known kind of pathological sides effects of, of divorce. And we've also minimized some of the difficulties associated with remarriages. Why remarriages are no happier than first marriages. And they're actually, uh, uh, overall, although there's exceptions, overall they're more likely to end in divorce, particularly where there are children involved and blended families involved. And, you know, nowadays, <clears throat> divorce is, for a child, divorce is not a singular event. Mm-hmm. Especially if the child is young, it's normally a divorce followed by a cohabitation, followed by another marriage or another cohabitation, followed by another divorce. So that many of our young people are at, are 18, 19 years old, having experienced two different, two, three, four different partners um, in a mix of both marital and cohabiting situations. And people aren't being honest about the impact that that's having on people. Now, when I address church audiences, knowing that there are many people out there, you know, across a range of life experiences, I say, I'm not interested in poking my fingers at anybody's eye. I'm not interested in thumping my chest. But because God just wants you to start where you're at. He wants you to start where you're at and build from there forward because that's the only place you can start. And that's, that's the only place that he really expects you to start. And, you know, I've had people come up to me after some of my talks that have been divorced and remarried three times. And they said, I identify myself in what you're talking about. And I appreciate that, 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 that approach, which is let's be honest about what's happening. Mm -hmm. here. Let's not shy away from it. But let's start where we're at. Yeah. Um, as sinners saved by grace and a, with a gracious God who died for our sins and loves us. Now, the that's for- where we start. The fourth part of your book deals with marital happiness and success. You offer recommendations for the church, what marital satisfaction and happiness is and how to uh, how to maintain that and the beautiful order of Christian marriage. I wish we had time to go into more detail about that, but we are out of time. But I would certainly recommend the book, Christian Marriage, A Comprehensive Introduction, to better understand what is it that God is calling us to do and how do we how do we achieve that? Uh, Dr. Ayers, thank you so much for talking with us today. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed it a lot. Really appreciate it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, news and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, Norma Paulus, a pioneering Oregon Republican who was the first woman elected to statewide office here in the state of Oregon, died today at age 85. Paulus was a member of the legislature, Oregon's secretary of state from 77 to 85, her party's nominee for governor in 1986 and the state's elected superintendent of schools for two terms in the 90s. She was fiscally conservative. She was a feminist and an environmentalist who crafted bipartisan legislation with Democratic women in the House in the 70s and championed the auditor's role in the Secretary of State's office. Well, as the state's top elections official, she helped bring about a fair election when the Rajneeshis tried in 1984 to bus in homeless people from afar to hijack a local Wasco County election. And she first instituted vote by mail in Oregon, championing its use in normally low-term 
turnout special elections. As an environmentalist, she required recycling in state office buildings. She wrote legislation to limit the use of off-road vehicles on state lands. And according to her autobiography, played a key role in preserving Cape Kiwanda as the state-owned natural area when PGE was targeting it as a nuclear power site. She died early uh, today after spending time in hospice for health problems related to dementia, according to a longtime friend of Paulus, who succeeded her as director of the Oregon Historical Society. Norma Paulus grew up in grinding depression era po- uh, poverty, rather, in eastern Oregon, never got a chance to go to college. But through a hometown connection, she got a secretarial job in Salem and was soon working for the chief justice of the Oregon Supreme Court. Eventually, she was admitted to law school at Willamette University where she studied part-time while holding down her secretarial job. While in law school, she married and gave birth to her daughter, Elizabeth, before graduating with honors in 1962. She won a seat in the Oregon House of Representatives, representing Salem in 1970, at a time when the legislature had only a handful of women. She was a pathbreaker. And a history maker, her longtime friend said. Speaking from the Oregon Capitol, Senator, or rather Senate President Peter Courtney recalled her uh, today, saying she blazed trails for women here. She was a founding member of the Oregon Women's Political Caucus and helped push the Equal Rights Amendment in Oregon, end quote. Paulus' autobiography, written largely by Gail Wills and Pat McCord, amateur, um, after Paulus's health and memory began to fail, is titled The Only Woman in the Room. As a legislator and secretary of state, she often literally was the only woman, woman rather, in whatever hall of power she occupied. That's uh, rarely the case these days. Norma Paulus died earlier today. She was 85. Michael Cohen, the uh, former personal attorney of uh, President Donald Trump, um, gave public testimony. It's now ended. Hours of assertion, speculation, contention, four allegations stand out uh, from the others. First, Cohen testified that Roger Stone told Donald Trump about the WikiLeaks document dump in advance of the Democratic Convention. Cohen testified that he suspected Trump knew in advance about Donald Trump Jr.'s infamous meeting with a Russian lawyer. Cohen asserted that Trump directed uh, him to make um, hush money payments and later reimbursed him for um, while Trump was president. And fourth, he claimed that Trump gave him implied directions to lie to Congress and that Trump's personal lawyer edited his false testimony. Well, the first two claims grabbed headlines taken together. They marked the first concrete under oath assertions that the president was involved in any way with the various bumbling efforts of the campaign officials and Trump allies to communicate with Russians or Russian assets. No claim, um, uh, the claim, they're nothing like a, the conclusion um, that has been alleged, but this is at least an element that has been given under oath for the first time. They don't add up to um, anything criminal, but they would be improper and embarrassing nonetheless. Those first two claims are among Cohen's um, least credible. The clearest expression of his claims regarding Trump and Stone comes in his opening statement. In July of 2016, days before the Democratic Convention, I was in Mr. Trump's office when his secretary announced that Roger Stone was on the phone. Mr. Trump put Mr. Stone on the speakerphone. Mr. Stone told Trump that he had just gotten off the phone with Julian Assange and that Mr. Assange told Mr. Stone that within a couple of days, there would be a massive dump of emails that would damage Hillary Clinton's campaign. Mr. Trump responded by stating uh, to the effect, who do... 
Wouldn't that be great? Again, this is not an occasion of criminal misconduct. It is merely a claim that Trump happily obtained advanced knowledge of a document dump by a known Russian asset. Now, there's been some uh, question about the timing of all of that and whether or not it was already public knowledge at the time. But nonetheless, this was testimony given uh, that will certainly be seized upon by the president's enemies. Well, Mr. Cohen is soon going to serve a prison sentence for, among other things, lying to Congress. He took a parting shot on Wednesday, speaking of his boss. Democrats on the committee said that they wanted to get to the truth, while Republicans on the committee pointed to Cohen's credibility problems. Mr. Cohen himself said, the last time I appeared before Congress, I came to protect Mr. Trump. Today I'm here to tell the truth. He later followed up saying, I have lied, but I am not a liar. I have done bad things, but I am not a bad man. I have fixed things, but I am no longer your fixer. Mr. Trump. Well, his testimony assailed the president's character, even accused the president of possible crimes, but he firmly disputed unsubstantiated claims cited by House Democrats that went off subject. Those included whether Mr. Trump had fathered a love child, whether he paid for any medical procedures for women who were not in his family, and whether he assaulted his wife in an elevator. These, again, subjects a bit off um, off the key point. Well, there were some takeaways uh, from this contentious hearing. One I thought was rather interesting. Um, Mr. Cohen pointed out that Trump's presidential run was his idea. He said that in 2011, he approached uh, Donald Trump about running for president and started the website shouldtrumprun.com. It was my idea. I saw a document in the newspaper that said, who would you vote for in 2012? Six percent of the people turned around and said they'd vote for Donald Trump, Cohen said. So I brought it into the office and I said, Mr. Trump, take a look at this. Wouldn't that be great? And that's where it all started. Now, I don't know if Mr. Trump would agree with that. Uh, timeline or that history. But nonetheless, if you want to either congratulate or uh, blame someone for uh, uh, Trump's presidential run, uh, Mr. Cohen says that would be me. Uh, Mr. Cohen also said that Trump was aware of the plans for um, a Trump Tower in Moscow. He pleaded guilty to lying to Congress about the Moscow project. But nonetheless, he said Mr. Trump knew of and directed the Trump-Moscow negotiations throughout the campaign and lied about it. He lied about it because he never expected to win the election. He also lied about it because he stood to make hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, Mr. Trump has since said that he didn't know if he was going to win or not, and so he didn't want the deal to fall through in the uh, unlikely event that he actually won, uh, which was not expected. Now, Mr. Cohen also said that the president had no um, uh, desire to win, which has been disputed as well. But again, some of what was said. Uh, Federal prosecutors in the Southern District of New York said Mr. Cohen was seeking a job in the Trump administration. Cohen was very careful not to call that a lie, but said instead that wasn't accurate. There's since been um, audio and video footage of him actually Uh, saying that was his expectation and his desire. He claimed uh, the president uh, said racist things frequently. He went into some detail, and if true, would be very off-putting, to put it mildly. He said that paying the hush money was, in fact, understood by the president and directed by him. He also pleaded guilty to campaign finance violations regarding payments to Stephanie uh, Clifford, who said she had been with the president. Uh, Cohen told members of the committee they didn't uh, have to just believe him because Uh, He was providing what he called irrefutable documentation, which he would present. Many Republicans criticized committee Democrats for holding the hearing while the president was in Vietnam for the summit. Now, um, Cohen made Vietnam part of his remarks, referring to the president getting draft deferments during the Vietnam War. Mr. Trump claimed it was because of a bone spur. But when I asked for medical records, he gave me none and said there was no surgery. He told me not to answer the specific questions by reporters, but rather offer simply uh, simply facts uh, that he received a medical deferment. 
Again, these were some of the uh, the notable things that were said during that hearing. Meanwhile, the GOP is uh, referring Michael Cohen to the Department of Justice for alleged perjury during those hearings. Um, and the Department of Justice is obliged to at least move forward with that. We'll uh, certainly follow what happens from that point forward. We're going to take a break 16 minutes after five o'clock when we return. We'll talk about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He's going to be indicted on bribery, fraud and breach of trust. There's a pending hearing. More on that when we return. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 22 minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu will be indicted on corruption charges, the country's attorney general said today, just weeks before the country goes to the polls. The attorney general said that the charge of one count of bribery and two counts of fraud and breach of trust relate to three different cases and came after two years of investigation. The indictments are subject to a hearing and marks the first time in Israeli history that a sitting prime minister has been charged with a crime. Former Prime Minister Ehud Olmert served time in prison for corruption, but had already resigned by the time he was charged. Netanyahu has denied any wrongdoing and calls the various allegations a media-orchestrated witch hunt aimed at removing him from office. He has vowed to carry on and uh, is deadlocked in the polls ahead of the national elections on the 9th of, um, of April. The left is on a hunting spree against me, he said on Thursday, adding that the accusations are a political ploy because they know they can't defeat me at the polls, In quote. Well, Netanyahu vowed to fight the charges, uh, which he called a lie. They take the work that every spokesperson does, and only in my case, they make it into a criminal case. Well, President Trump, with whom Netanyahu has forged a close relationship, offered the Israeli leader a boost ahead of the uh, announcement. I just think he's been a great prime minister, and I don't know about uh, his difficulty, but you tell me uh, something uh, people have been hearing about. Uh, I don't know about when he went on from that with some confusion and Anyway, um, the most serious allegations against Netanyahu involve his relationship with um, a controlling shareholder of Israel's telecom giant, uh, Bezik. Police recommended an indictment in the case based on evidence collected that that confidants of Netanyahu promoted um, regulatory changes worth hundreds of millions of dollars for that company. In exchange, they believe Netanyahu used his connections uh, with the individual to receive positive press coverage on the popular subsidiary news site Walla. Now, police have said their investigation concluded that Netanyahu and Elovich, the owner of the company, engaged in a bribe-based relationship. Police have previously recommended indicting Netanyahu on corruption charges in two other cases. One involves accepting gifts from billionaire friends, and the second revolves around alleged offers of advantageous legislation for a major newspaper in return for favorable coverage. It's too early to tell what impact... Um, all of this and the decision and all of this will have on the upcoming election again in April. The allegations could either galvanize his hardline supporters who see him as the victim of an overzealous prosecution or turn more moderate backers against him who are tired of his lengthy rule tainted by accusations of corruption. Either way, the upcoming elections appear to be uh, turning into a referendum on Netanyahu.
Well, the Supreme Court heard oral arguments uh, Wednesday in a case challenging the constitutionality of a World War I memorial in Bladensburg, Maryland, the American Legion versus American Humanist Association. The Supreme Court uh, weighed in on whether or will weigh in on whether a state's maintenance of a 93-year-old World War I memorial that includes a 40-foot cross known as the Peace Cross is an establishment of religion in violation of the First Amendment. This is significant because it has the potential to have very broad implications. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit held that the Peace Cross violates the Establishment Clause, concluding that the size and prominence of the cross convey government endorsement of Christianity, and the state's maintenance of the cross is an excessive entanglement with religion. One of the judges went so far as to suggest a way to fix the Establishment Clause problem would be to cut off the arms of the cross, which of course would make it something else altogether. It was a packed house on Wednesday at the Supreme Court with three lawyers arguing on behalf of the Peace Cross constitutionality and a fourth arguing against. The justices came prepared with lots of questions and at times talked over each other uh, and the four um, advocates. Well, Neil Katyal, a uh, former Obama administration attorney and second in command for uh, then Solicitor General Elena Kagan represented the Maryland National Capital Park and Planning Commission, the state agency that's charged with the memorial's upkeep. Michael Carvin, an attorney f- with Jones Day, who argued a number of high-profile cases, represented the American Legion. Jeff Wall of the U.S. Solicitor General's Office represented the federal government. And Monica Miller of the American Humanist Association made her Supreme Court debut, arguing against the Peace Cross. Some of the key exchanges, um, uh, Ketyal was the first up at, to the podium, and he got only a few sentences in before Justice Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan jumped in, wanting to know more about the Peace Cross and its message. Well, he explained that the American Legion's uh, symbol is featured prominently on the cross. There are no other religious, uh, uh, is no other religious content in the park where it sits. It's located on a medium between a busy uh, traffic turnaround. Um, uh, This wasn't always the case, but over the years, the roads around the Peace Cross were expanded to the point that the state of Maryland became concerned about traffic safety. The American Legion holds an annual event at the site on Veterans Day, and there have been no religious events held there. Um, Kachal noted that there's a clear secular purpose for the monument and that, indeed, one of the key initial fundraisers for the private funded cross was Jewish. He explained that there is no uh, long there is a long tradition of using the cross to memorialize the soldier who died in World War One. Well, Elena Kagan. She suggested that if a local government tried to put up a cross like this today, it would be problematic. And she posed a hypothetical with five different kinds of crosses, a World War II memorial cross erected 93 years ago, a World War I memorial cross erected today, a uh, generic war memorial cross, a cross memorializing those who died in some other kind of tragedy, and a cross that was unrelated to any war or tragedy and didn't memorialize anyone. She wanted to know which of these crosses is permissible under the the First Amendment's Establishment Clause and why. Well, Wall explained that the first four examples would most certainly be constitutional, and the fifth would uh, depend on the purpose because uh, context matters. Wall pointed out that our nation has a long tradition of accommodating religious symbols, including crosses. Kagan retorted that the cross is the preeminent symbol of Christianity, but Wall noted that it has a unique history to World War I in memorializing those who died in the service to their country. Later in the argument, Miller was asked which crosses on public land should be allowed to stand. 
Justice Samuel Alito mentioned the Irish Brigade Monument in Gettysburg. Miller answered, only those in settings where the cross is akin to an artifact in a museum and the government acts like a curator. Well, Judge Alito, or Justice Alito, asked Miller what kind of monument a town could uh, put up to memorialize those who died in a shooting at a synagogue. She responded that an obelisk uh, with the Star of David would be permissible, but a 40-foot Star of David would be problematic. Uh, She continued, it's too loud, or does the commemorative purpose uh, predominate? Justice Gorsuch then jumped in at the opportunity to bring up standing to uh, bring a lawsuit in the first place. Miller answered that the Peace Cross and other similar monuments and the message that non-Christians are inferior and lesser citizens. She continued noting that the Peace Cross reference to valor, endurance, courage and devotion translates to Christian valor, Christian courage and so on. Well, certainly in her mind, I'm not sure to all. Chief Justice John Roberts asked if one complaint from one person should be enough to bring a lawsuit. Miller replied, no, it would have to be um, that you are a member of the community and you are personally affected by the message. Well, how should the court uh, determine what an establishment of religion is? Well, this is a central question, not only to this case, but for future cases regarding uh, monuments. Another question, should the Supreme Court overrule the Lemon Test? Gorsuch brought up the unworkable multi-factor lemon test that Justice Antonin Scalia once compared to a ghoul in a late-night horror movie that repeatedly sits up in its grave and shuffles abroad after being repeatedly killed and buried. Well, what's the real-world impact of the case? The Supreme Court will decide in the days ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty, Coin, and Currency. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown signed the mandatory rent control bill today. She argued that faced with a housing shortage and skyrocketing rents, Oregon had become the first state uh, that needed to impose a mandatory rent control, with the governor putting the final signature on the measure establishing tenant protections uh, that swiftly moved through the legislature. Some would argue too swiftly. Uh, The governor signed Senate Bill 608. Um, It had previously passed the democratically controlled state house by a vote of 35 to 25 after passing the Senate. Well, under the bill, landlords would only be allowed to raise rent a limited amount once a year, regardless of actual costs. Many residents have testified in favor of the legislation, describing anxiety and hardship as they face higher rents. Some have gone up uh, by as much as almost 100 percent, forcing people to move, stay with friends or even live in their vehicles. The town of Medford recently authorized churches to offer car camping for the homeless on their parking lots. Cities across the West Coast are struggling with soaring housing prices and a growing homelessness uh, problem. Now, the House committee rejected a proposed amendment that would have uh, exempted cities with populations under 150,000 and another that would have delayed the measure from becoming law until January of 2020 instead of immediately after Brown signs it. Uh, We've waited too long as it is, um, Representative Tana Sanchez says, and there are too many people living in tents. It is an emergency. Now, whether or not this will have an immediate effect on people living in tents or if it will have um, the impact of depressing the housing market uh, remains to be seen. But there is growing concern that this may have a deleterious effect on housing in the state of Oregon as other options were not considered. And this becomes effective immediately without giving those who um, own properties, have to maintain properties and so on, the opportunity to prepare. 
Oregon's housing shortage is getting worse as people keep moving to the state, lured by its forests, mountains, coastline, relaxed lifestyles, and even television programs. Oregon ranked uh, second to Vermont as the top moving destination in 2018, according to a study by the United Van Lines, the largest U.S. household goods mover. Lawmakers noted that Oregon will be a pioneer in statewide rent control if the measure becomes law, and it has. New York has a statewide rent control law, but cities can choose whether to participate. California restricts the ability of cities to impose rent control. Last November, voters defeated a ballot initiative that would have overturned that law. Uh, homelessness and affordability have no boundaries, Democratic Representative Mark Meek said. Uh, we're going to be leading the nation now with this legislation. And let's hope it's not for reasons that opponents uh, to this um, legislation have suggested will be the outcome. But it was signed into law by the governor with immediate effect. And three environmental bills that would expand statewide uh, what some cities in Oregon already practice are moving forward through the legislative process. Senate Bill 90 puts the decision on the consumer who wants a single-use straw in a restaurant. A restaurant employee would not be allowed to automatically provide one. A public hearing has taken place and a work session was planned for today. House Bill 2883 prohibits a food vendor from using polystyrene, often referred to as the trademark styrofoam, from selling, offering for sale, serving or dispensing prepared food to the public. Two public hearings have been held on that bill. As a fifth-generation Oregonian, says a representative student uh, Susan McLean, uh, who grew up enjoying the uh, great natural wonders of our state, I'm very invested in ensuring that future generations have access to the same clean water and environment that I did. House Bill 2509, which McLean heartily supports, bans single-use checkout bags, except in certain cases. A hearing has been held, but two... Uh, but no work sessions have been scheduled. Plastic bags could still be used for chilling meat or or seafood or items that include uh, confidential information. Polystyrene containers are already banned in Portland, Milwaukee, Silverton, Florence, Ashland, and Medford. And at least 14 cities ban single-use straws. Some 16 cities ban single-use plastic grocery bags. Uh, I, I guess the push is to move people away from expecting to have um, bags and um, things to carry their stuff home in. You have to bring your own with the exception of a few things as mentioned. Most of those who provided testimony at the public hearing on plastic bags were in favor of the bill saying plastic bags start out as fossil fuels end up as deadly waste in landfills and the ocean page Spence of the Oregon leave of conservation. Um, Vinod Singh of far West recycling said homeowners put plastic bags in their waste what he calls wishful recycling that literally brings massive sorting machines to a grinding halt. On the other side, corporate lobbying group Oregon Business and Industry said House Bill 2509 would exempt garment and dry cleaning bags. A new state law should supersede current city ordinances, the group said. The American Forest and Paper Association raised concerns about a 10-cent tax on disposable bags and wants an amendment that exempts paper bags from that tax. The opposition to the plastic straw and polystyrene bills came from a chemical industry lobbyist. An American Chemistry Council lobbyist, Lindsay Stovall, testified that polystyrene can be recycled and overall leaves a light environmental footprint. She questioned whether the bill would result in replacing one type of trash for another, which unfortunately is so often the case. Something sounds like it's going to be uh, useful and it ends up being uh, less so. So we'll have to see what, what happens with uh, with these particular items. 
And as Internet speeds continue to lag in rural parts of the state, Oregon lawmakers are contemplating a new fee on cell phone service to help pay for expanded broadband in remote and uh, underserved communities. House Bill 2184 would raise about $10 million a year to fund broadband projects through grants and loans. Advocates say it would cost cell phone subscribers between 4 to $12 a year. Uh, we can't all be part of the modern life and the modern world if we don't have access to some of the needs. Representative Pam Marsh, a Democrat from Ashland, as the majority of lawmakers are. The bill will face fierce opposition from the wireless industry, though, which um, says it will fight to keep Oregon's cell phone fees low too late. The industry says it doesn't um, make sense to tax one kind of service, wireless phones, to subsidize a completely different kind of wired internet service, but my guess is they'll find a creative way to do it. House Bill 2184 is tens of millions of dollars in taxes that will hurt all Oregonians, including those with low and moderate incomes. Jamie um, uh, Hastings, Vice President of the State and External Affairs for the Wireless Industry uh, Trade Group, CTAIA, these regressive bills, or rather this regressive bill, will have a negative impact on working families and burden those who rely most on wireless as a vital lifeline. She went on to say, well, the bill supporters say broadband service is a lifeline unavailable to many in the state. And so taxing one group to support the other in this case, they find a viable uh, option. Uh, we've just got to... Um, this ginormous urban-rural technology divide, they said. Well, Oregon cell phone owners have long enjoyed some of the nation's lowest cell phone taxes, which is supposed to, I suppose, make Oregon cell phone owners feel guilty because they don't pay as much as other states. The Tax Foundation ranks Oregon as the cheapest in the nation for cellular at 2.1%, just one-sixth of the national average. In prior years, Oregonians have zealously guarded their low-tax status. In 2004, for example, Portland contemplated a five-cent cell phone tax to pay for drug treatment programs and more jail sales. The proposal died before even coming to the city council vote amid a consumer outcry. With a Democratic supermajority in Salem, though, the persistent broadband disparities in the Republican-leaning rural areas of the state There may be more appetite to collect more from cell phone customers, however, this time around. Currently before the House Committee on Economic Development, chaired by Representative John Lively, uh, Marsh said that she anticipates the bill would need to clear the Revenue and Ways and Means Committee before getting a floor vote. Seems like things are just flying by. Well, PayPal is under fire for religious, or rather from religious groups and Uh, conservatives after its CEO recently revealed it works with the far-left Southern Poverty Law Center, or SPLC, to help identify accounts to ban from the payment platform. Well, as you probably know, there's a controversy over how the Southern Poverty Law Center that had once had a stellar reputation for singling out violent um, and subversive groups. However, now they have... um, highlighted groups that are neither of those things, but disagree with some fundamental issues that the Southern uh, Poverty Law Center hold dear. Now, the groups are calling for a boycott of the digital payment system because it's collaborating with a group that lists several conservative Christian organizations as hate groups or extremists because of their religious views. Well, SPLC has targeted conservative groups like the Family Research Council, Alliance Defending Freedom, but also more recently and went after Majid Nawaz, a liberal who was a former Islamic radical. The SPLC labeled him and others anti-Muslim extremists, uh, but later apologized and paid about $3.375 million to settle the lawsuit. Columnist Mark Thiessen 
said the SPLC has become a caricature of itself, labeling virtually anyone who doesn't fall in uh, in line with their ideology an extremist or hate group. PayPal CEO Dan Schulman told the Wall Street Journal it uses the organization as part of its mission toward diversity and inclusion. Our mission is to demonstrate financial access for all citizens so that managing and moving money is a right for everybody, not a privilege for the affluent. Well, certainly not for everybody, but for those they deem worthy. Conservative groups wonder if working with the SPLC means the platform will begin banning Christians. PayPal relies on the radical uh, Southern Poverty Law Center to decide uh, who to ban from their platform. Um, uh, Boycott PayPal uh, tweeted Bridget Gabrielle, the founder of Act for America, the group that has uh, uh, is against radical Islam and has deemed have been deemed a hate group by the SPLC. Forty six minutes after five o'clock. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. A couple of things I want to remind you of that tickets are now on sale for the Gospel Sing Live that's coming up in August. And you might think, you know, this is February. Why am I even thinking about August? Well, let me encourage you to get your tickets early. This is going to be a big event. We're celebrating 50 years of the Gospel Sing, and that will be on Friday, August the 17th at 7 p.m. at Riverfront Park in Salem. It's going to feature West Hampton, uh, Tribute Quartet, the Booth Brothers. Tickets on sale. You can go to kpdq.com for more information. It's going to be a great Saturday night celebrating and um, featuring the events of 50 years of the gospel sing. So we're looking forward to that. want to make sure you get your tickets. Also, Ignite is coming up this Saturday. You can go to kpdq.com or the KPDQ mobile app for more information. Uh, but you are invited to join us. You can purchase your tickets at the door. That's this Saturday, March the 3rd at Greater Portland Bible Church. Uh, I have an opportunity to speak on the wonder of God's love and how we can extend it to uh, to others. Uh, and they're going to be a great, um, in fact, Karen Howell is going to be the keynote speaker, and uh, she's worth the price of admission all by herself. But there are two opportunities for workshops on a variety of subjects. You can check out all of those details, again, online at kpdq.com. Great speakers, meaningful worship, prayer, dynamic breakout sessions, Ignite. And this year's theme, Ignite the Wonder, and that's uh, this Saturday at the Greater Portland Bible Church on Southwest Vermont here in Portland. Also, if you've been thinking about a Christian education, this is a great time to move on that thought because KPDQ is offering some discounted tuitions. A Christian education might be more accessible for you now than it had been before. KPDQ listeners can save up to 40% on Christian school tuition. And those schools, among others, Cornerstone Christian Academy, Tualatin Valley Academy... North Clackamas Christian School, Columbia Christian, Pilgrim Lutheran, and Western Christian. There are many others. You need to go to the website, listenersavings.com, for the complete list and the tuition costs and savings and all of that. Now is the time uh, to make those arrangements, and I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Finally, I wanted to mention that uh, the women of KPDQ and our sister station, The Fish, have begun a new project. It is a podcast, and it's simply called Best Day Ever. Uh, You can have the best day ever with the ladies of 93.9 and 104.1 The Fish. 
and the Best Day Ever podcast. Uh, Summer Shore, Crystal Thornton, and myself, we had the opportunity. Cat Taylor, uh, we'll have opportunities throughout the run of show uh, to share some uh, just c- some interesting conversation on things that are light and meaningful to women and sometimes more serious as well. You can get to know uh, all of us behind the mic here, honest, upbeat conversations about life and family, faith and friendship. We have our first episode that... Um, uh, it has now come out. Uh, it'll be heard twice a month and we'll have new content, of course, each time. You can subscribe and download the latest at kpdq.com. Let me encourage you to do that. The best day ever featuring the women of KPDQ and The Fish. So hope you'll take advantage of that uh, podcast. Well, a baby, a tiny baby in Tokyo weighing the same as a large onion, went home healthy today. The tiny tot weighed 268 grams about 10 ounces, when he was delivered at 24 weeks. He's reportedly um, uh, stopped growing in the womb, and that's why they had to uh, take him that early. He was so small, he fit into an adult's cupped hands. The university there said the boy was believed rather to now hold the record for the smallest newborn to be discharged from a hospital in good health. The record was previously held by a boy born in Germany in 2009, weighing 274 grams or 9.6 ounces. Again, this little boy at 10 ounces. Um, the hospital said, citing a registry put together by the University of Iowa for the world's tiniest surviving babies. After five months of treatment, the boy now weighs just over seven pounds, is feeding normally, has been discharged. According to the hospital, he was discharged last week, two months after his initial due date. Uh, local media reported, I can only say I'm happy that he has grown this big because honestly, I wasn't sure he was going to survive. The boy's mother said, well, BBC News points out that the boy was born by emergency C-section. Uh, the doctor who um, pre- performed that procedure treated the infant following said he wanted to tell people that there is a possibility the babies will be able to leave the hospital in good health, even though they're born small. Now, this uh, has a lot to uh, to do with the, the notion of viability. And uh, to have this little uh, 10-ounce boy survive uh, is saying something. The smallest surviving girl was born in Germany in 2015. She weighed 8.9 ounces, according to the University of Iowa Registry. The survival rate of the smallest babies is substantially lower for boys compared to girls. Experts are still not entirely sure why. Well, there have been some suggestions it could be partly related to the slower development of lungs in male babies. Uh, Japan is one of the world's lowest, has one, rather, one of the lowest rates of infant mortality, according to UNICEF. Anyway, this little boy, now um, weighing seven pounds, has gone home. Now, for those of you who are familiar with premature births, you know that this is um, not one and done. You know, he's healthy, he's gone home. It means a long period of time in which his development will have to be monitored, and that can uh, result in some deficit. So if you think about this little kid in Japan, might say a little prayer for him, uh, released from KO University Hospital at seven pounds. Uh, that's two months after his due date, uh, having been released. Meanwhile, Oregon women are giving birth to fewer babies than their counterparts in many states at a time when the nation's birth rate has dropped to a 30-year low. A study of the 2017 data from the National Center for Health Statistics showed that Women in the United States aren't birthing enough babies to replace the population at current levels. That's according to the Wall Street Journal, who uh, issued the report. In 2017, 3.85 million babies were born. To replace the population, the rate needs to be 2,100 babies born every 
uh, for every 1,000 women. But nationally, that number is 1,765 in 2017, the lowest since 1987. But the birth rates vary greatly depending on the geographic region, ethnicity of the mothers, and so on. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention of the National Center for Health Statistics evaluating the geographic data identified the Midwest and Southeast as having higher fertility rates. We can speculate about why that might be the case, especially compared with the Northeast and Oregon and California in particular on the West Coast. Well, the highest state rate was in South Dakota, um, compared with um, the District of Columbia. Now, South Dakota, 2,227. District of Columbia, 1,400. Only two states met the minimum threshold for replacing the population. That was South Dakota and Utah. Well, the highest rates uh, were among Hispanic women, who topped 2,100 births in 29 states. African-American women reached the threshold in 12 states. Caucasian women didn't reach the uh, birth level in any state. Rural women were more likely than uh, those in the city to have more babies. Anyway, failing to repopulate the nation could pose problems in the future with an aging population and not enough young people in the workforce. So there are demographic implications to all of that, um, which... Uh, They're just now beginning to evaluate. Well, today being Thursday, tomorrow being Friday, means that we're going to lighten up and take a look at the lighter side of the news. Looking forward to to that. So that will be the the content of our conversation uh, tomorrow. So I hope you can join us. Also want to remind you that um, we've got some events coming up this weekend, Ignite on Saturday. We sure want to give you a personal invitation to join us. You can go to kpdq.com for specific information, and you can register at the door. Great music uh, in the worship team, the um, uh, Dancers from Vancouver, whose names have just escaped me, uh, will also be performing. It is a premier event here in the Portland area for women. And so we want to encourage you to join us. And again, more information about Ignite the Wonder. It's uh, put on by Western Seminary, their women's program there, and uh, has uh, done an excellent job of encouraging, inspiring, and informing women. So I hope to see you there on Saturday. I want to thank James Blind for producing and Clark Hilton for engineering today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show. And like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.